It's my great joy to introduce our speaker this morning. Uh, Jeff Keaton is the founder of Renew a Nation. Uh, we got exposed to him uh, back in 2018. Uh, we were at a, a conference where he was speaking, and we said, man, we'd love to, to get more of our people to, to hear this message. And so we took some more people in 2019 to hear him. And then we said, you know what, we got to bring him to us. And I, sh- I shared this on Friday night. Uh, we had him scheduled to speak in the middle of March 2020. And so a week before that event uh, was supposed to happen, we canceled that event because none of you would have come. And so we are excited to finally be able to welcome this morning to share God's word, Jeff Keaton. Would you guys give him a welcome this morning? Thank you, Pastor. Good morning. It is so good to uh, watch all these young people lead us in worship. I love that. Um, And... uh, to, to be here to celebrate 50 years of Christian education in your school. Your school was birthed in what we call the first wave or great awakening for Christian education in America in the 60s, 70s, and early 80s. And then there were thousands and thousands of schools launched during that time. And then that movement kind of as an organic growth movement kind of slowed down. And over the last 20-plus years, homeschooling became the organic Christian education movement. And then... Since COVID, March of 2020, when I was supposed to be here, Pastor, uh, honestly, you canceled and so did everybody else. And we were sitting in our offices in Virginia, my team, and we literally said, is this the end of Christian education? I mean, if everybody loses their jobs and nobody can afford tuition and, and, and you know, none of our donors support us anymore, are we done? Oh, how foolish we were. <laughs> It was actually a brand new beginning. And uh, in the last three years, several million new children have come into Christian education through Christian schools or Christian homeschooling. Is that amazing or what? I said to my team not long ago, how many of you, if we'd have been sitting in our offices in February of 2020, and we, we asked the big question, how could we get millions of new children receiving biblical worldview education? I said, how many of you had raised your hand and said, let's have a worldwide pandemic? Nobody. But let me tell you something. His ways are higher than our ways, and God uses everything that happens in this world for his honor and his glory. And um, the, the awakening is so big, and I actually call it a parental awakening. It's not so much an awakening about education. It's straight up parents in this nation have stood up and said, enough is enough. Our children are going to be taught the truth. And what a tremendous thing that has happened, and I praise God for it. And uh, your school is no doubt a part of that great awakening. And, but you've been faithful for 50 years. And Christian education is messy. It's not easy. It's tough. It's challenging all the time because you have kids from kindergarten to 12th grade for 16,000 hours in your buildings. Uh, and it, when I had a church, when I was pastoring and I had a school, we had to repaint every single wall every single year. And occasionally a church board member would look at me and say, man, this is expensive. And I would say, um, yes, it is very costly. But let me ask you, you lead the men's ministry. How many hours a month do you have your men in this building? Four. I said, we got them for 40 hours a week. You think we're not going to have to spend some money on this? But look at the opportunity God has given us to shape their thinking and their minds. And so, yeah, I was going to say it was such a big deal that the New York Times called and wanted to come. And they did an interview with me in my office because they had one question. What in the world is going on? Why are so many parents now investing in Christian education? Isn't it great when God does something so big that the New York Times comes calling? Now, I was very nervous. I videoed the entire interview so that she wouldn't lie on me. But anyhow, maybe you love the New York Times and think they're 100% trustworthy. Well, God bless you. Keep your head in the sand and we'll move forward. All right. Sixteen years ago, as I was watching our country collapse under the weight of moral decadence and false ideologies, God burned into my heart a brand new passion to just to stop just cursing the darkness. We're pretty good at that as Christians, aren't we? We sit around and say, oh, it's terrible, it's terrible, it's terrible, it's terrible. I've heard that from so many Christians. I'm worn out with that word. It's terrible. And you got to believe it is actually very terrible. But God challenged me to stop just cursing the darkness and start taking the light of his beautiful design into the darkness of our world. As a result of this new vision that God gave me, we launched Renew a Nation, 
with the vision to transform culture by giving millions of new children a biblical worldview. I had no idea in the day after Thanksgiving 2007 when God began to burn this on my heart, and it's never left me for five minutes since 2007. I had no idea that God was going to prepare Renew a Nation and many other ministries so that when a worldwide pandemic came, we would be ready to seize upon this moment to see millions of new children developing a biblical worldview. Our mission at Renew a Nation is to inspire and equip the family, church, and school to give children a biblical worldview because we have discovered that when you get the family, the church, and the school all teaching God's truth, that is a three-stranded cord that is not easily broken. Just yesterday, I went up to Frisco. I spoke here Friday night, and I had a rare Saturday off when I'm on the road. I spoke in Detroit, Michigan, north of Detroit, on Thursday night, and I was just glad I got here by Friday night. And I went up to Frisco, and I met with about a dozen young couples, young men and women, most of whom transplanted themselves down here in the last two or three years from Virginia. These young men and women came through our Christian school. They came from Christian homes, and they came from some of our wonderful churches up there. And they are literally living in Frisco. My my nephew and his wife live in an apartment that has 520 square feet. They're all working two jobs because God called these young people down here to plant a brand new church in Frisco, Texas, and to live right up there in the most expensive city you can ever find. And yet, as I looked at them, Caleb was standing there. He was, I said to him, when did you come into our school? He said, when I was six years old. And today he's working two jobs and killing himself up there trying to help plant a church so they can bring a bunch of people to Jesus. Let me tell you something right now. When you give children a biblical worldview through the, fa- the family, the church, and the school, they go out and do amazing things. They do amazing things. So this morning, I want to share with you six reasons why we must give our children and grandchildren a biblical worldview. But before I do that, I want to give you a brief definition of what I mean by the term worldview. A worldview is the set of presuppositions and beliefs that we use to interpret and form opinions and values concerning life, humanity, family, authority, justice, truth, duty, etc. Our worldview is the big picture. It is the culmination of all of our beliefs. It is the way we understand reality, and, is the, and it is the basis from which we make all of our daily decisions. Now, every adult here this morning already has a fully developed worldview of some kind. It may be a biblical worldview. It may be an unbiblical worldview. It may be a hybrid of the two, and likely it is actually a hybrid Wherever in our lives we understand God's word and understand how to apply it to all of our life, we're living out a biblical worldview. And I can promise you those are the areas where we have the most peace and productivity and prosperity in our lives. But any area where we do not understand how God views life, how he sees life, how he expects us to live our life, whether it's in the area of business, medicine, law, government, ministry, whatever it is, any area where we don't understand God's good and beautiful design and we're not living it out, I can promise you those are the areas of our lives where we're having difficulty and problems and trouble. So every adult here has some kind of a worldview. Every child represented here today whether they're in this service or in some junior service you have around here, or maybe they're not even here, it's your children or grandchildren, every child represented here this morning is in the process of developing a worldview of some kind. The question is not, will my child have a worldview? The question is, which one will they develop? And I'm going to let you in on a little secret this morning, that the world... The ungodly world that we live in is in the worldview-shaping business. They want to shape your child's worldview, and unless you are intentional about not allowing that to happen, and unless you are intentional about making sure your child develops a biblical worldview, the world and the devil behind that world will help your child develop a false worldview. I'm privileged to speak several times a year with George Barna. I think some of you guys are coming to the Museum of the Bible here next month, and I'll be speaking there, and George Barna will be speaking there. And I love to hear George speak, even though after he speaks, I go jump off a bridge every single time because he's the queen and king of all statistics. He's the leading, most well-known Christian sociologist in America over the last 40 years. And here's what he's been saying lately. 
He says, in all of my 40 years of research, I have now concluded definitively that the worldview a child has at the age of 13 is the worldview statistically they will die with. Doesn't that help us understand better why we ought to be training children from the time they're very, very small so that by the time they're 13, 15, 18, they have developed a worldview that is truth-based and will help them throughout their entire life. I have discovered that whoever has the most access to the hearts and minds of our children and grandchildren will determine which worldview they develop. I want you to think about that for just a moment. Whoever has the most access to the hearts and minds of our children will determine the worldview they developed. They develop. Unless you think this is just some theoretical or philosophical discussion this morning, let me remind you that what you believe, your worldview, has real-life consequences. I'll never forget, as just a young boy, I was born into a large family. I was the fourth of nine children. And my oldest brother, Jimmy, uh, he was the oldest of the family. He was four years older than I. And uh, he was my absolute hero. Whatever Jimmy wanted to do, Jeffrey wanted to do. And Jimmy was Henri. I like to say that he was born with a double dose of depravity. I was born very angelic, but Jimmy had a double dose of depravity. And so for whatever reason, my brothers and I and some boys in the neighborhood, we started forming clubs when we got old enough to do this. And we started forming all these little different clubs. And it was always me and Jimmy and my buddy Kevin were always the leaders of the club, but we forced every other kid in the community to go through some form of initiation to be in our club. It was fun as long as we didn't have to go through initiation. I remember one day we were standing there with this boy and he wanted to be in our club so bad. And my dad pastored a church out in the middle of the country and it was right in the middle of a cow pasture, basically. And we were standing in the cow pasture and we were looking at each other and say, what kind of initiation should we force this young man to go through to join our club? And we saw cow manure laying right there in the field. And so we looked at the kid and said, you have to eat it. Now, we were very merciful. It wasn't fresh. It was kind of crunchy. So it tasted like chips. Okay. The kid was dumb enough to eat it. He, you know, our clubs were cool. He want, we, everybody wanted to be in them. He didn't die either, but he didn't get COVID, I bet, because he had tremendous immunity. But anyhow. <clears throat> so I was good as long as I was one of the founders of the club. But then one day, Jimmy stole my best friend, Kevin, and started a brand new club. And Jimmy and Kevin told me they picked this tree that I love to climb. And they said, that is the headquarters of the club. And you're no longer allowed to climb the tree until you go through initiation. Well, I knew what initiation was like. I didn't want to go through initiation, but I'm going to tell you something. My little false worldview said to me, it is so important to get into this club that you've got to do whatever they ask you to do. So I said to my brother, Jimmy, what do I have to do? I want to be in the club with you and Kevin. I want to be able to climb that tree again. And Jimmy said, it's not too bad. He reached down and he picked up a rock about that big. And he said, we're, we're out in the country. We got one car every 10 minutes, okay? He said, you stand on the pavement. You have to put your feet on the pavement, and you have to hit the next car that comes by with the rock. Now, thankfully, we're standing right next to the parsonage, so it was tremendous church evangelism and growth you know, for the church. So here I am, and my little worldview was so messed up, I said, absolutely, that's not hard. That's not eating cow manure. I can do this. Give me the rock, Jimmy. And I took the rock, and I planted my feet firmly on the pavement, and here comes this dear elderly brother driving his old station wagon down the road. And, I mean, my whole time, the whole time I was going, all i got to do is hit him, and I'm in the club. I can climb the tree. This is brilliant. He comes right up next to me, and I wind up, and I sock him right in the second door. I don't know if you ever did anything stupid when you were a kid, but I've noticed that when I did something really stupid, the moment I did it, I came back to my senses. My worldview changed immediately. Actually, I heard that thing go boom, and I said, I'm getting ready to die. (laughs) And uh, my brother Jimmy has told us all through our lives, he said, Jeff, the one thing I remember, the only thing I remember was I turned to my right, and all that I saw was the bottom of your white tennis shoes flying across that field. (laughs) You were gone. Now, God does have a tremendous sense of humor. The guy slammed on his brakes, backed up, and blamed the entire thing on my brother Jimmy. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) 
On a much more serious note, on 9-11, 19 young men lived out their radical Islamic worldview and took the lives of 3,000 innocent Americans. These young men believed with all their heart that what they were doing was right. They even believed that what they were doing was the work of God by killing Americans. I've watched those videos of those young men going through those metal detectors many times. I tried to get inside their heads. I wanted to say they were they were out of their minds. Something was terribly wrong, surely. But there were 19 of them, and they coordinated this for years. They weren't out of their minds. And you know what I concluded? From the time they were about this tall, someone had filled their minds with falsehoods, a false world view. And they truly believed with all of their heart that if they were to kill the infidels, especially the Americans, that God would be waiting on them with open arms. Worldviews have consequences. What we believe determines our actions, and our actions have consequences for good or bad. Our nation is a mess this morning because millions of, of people have not been taught the truth as children, and now as adults they are living out their false worldview. Precious elderly saints come up to me all across America, and they say something like this, Jeff, what in the world has happened to our nation? The unthinkable is going on. I was telling them Friday night, I was at a a large church in York, Pennsylvania, and this church has a massive ministry into the public schools. And this pastor said to me, Jeff, you're not going to believe this. In one of the schools I'm working with, we have this girl who is identified as a cat. And they're letting her go to the restroom in a cat litter box, and her mother delivers cat food at lunch for her to eat. And we can do nothing about it. We've literally lost our minds because we've been taught an absolutely false worldview. Let me fix this thing real quick. I like tape because I've got my grandma Cash's little tiny ears. You see that? Let me quickly give you six reasons why we must give our children and grandchildren a biblical worldview. First of all, our children and grandchildren belong to God. We are only their managers and their stewards. That's it. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Do you still believe here, and I think we're in Fort Worth, Texas, that children are a gift from Almighty God? That children are not a burden. Children are not a problem. They're a privilege. Oh, how beautiful children are. Unfortunately, many in our world do not believe this today. Children have become an inconvenience to a successful career. Children have become a financial burden that prevents couples from traveling and recreating as they like. And listen, there are entire social media groups now, young couples who are getting married and celebrating the fact that they're never going to have children because they want to travel the world and they don't want children to cost them money. And there's these huge groups developing because we haven't taught those young people a biblical view of God, God's view of children. Children belong to God, their gift, their reward, their heritage. The evidence that couples do not value children today is seen in the data. Couples are waiting longer and longer to get married. The average age is 29 years of age now in the United States of America. I'm not saying you have to get married at 18 years old. What I am saying is that it is God's good design for young men and women to, uh, you know, the first time I knew that, that God had women in mind for me was in the a second grade, and my first girlfriend, her name was Taffy, T-A-F-F-Y. She had long, beautiful, straight black hair, and she was the most pretty thing this little boy had ever seen in his life. I fell in love with Taffy, and I wrote her a love note. And I'll tell you what broke us up. This one old teacher, Mrs. Harding, she was mean as a snake. But anyhow... She caught me writing Taffy a love note in the bus line. She stole it and read my love note to Taffy. I don't know why, but it killed all my affection for Taffy. I was so embarrassed. So me and Taffy didn't make it. It's God's good design. Hey, young men and young women right here on the front rows, you ain't married yet. You're thinking about it, though, aren't you? I can tell. Are y'all sweet on each other? Are you? No, anyhow. What's your face getting red for, buddy? Your parents not know about it? Don't laugh too much because that slows me down. i got to keep moving here, you know. It's God's good design. Actually, Christianity Today published a major study that the healthiest marriages in the world are people who get married in their early 20s, younger. Because God wants couples to get married, have babies, lots of them. 
Waiting longer to, not only are couples waiting longer to get married, but they're waiting longer to have children after marriage, and they're having fewer and fewer children in the USA. You have to average 2.1 births per family just to maintain a population, any population, all right? In the United States, we were doing pretty well until maybe five to seven years ago, and we just had a, we had a precipitous drop-off. Now we're down to 1.56, something like that. We're not even having enough children in order to maintain our population. If it wasn't for immigration, we would be a dying country. This has happened to Europe a long time ago. The European population, they've been below 2.1 for a long time. They're now down maybe around one child per family. And guess what? But in Europe, the Islamic families are having eight children per family. Some sociologists believe that Islam will rule Europe within 30 to 50 years on birth rate alone. Birth rate alone. Did you know that China is in a massive crisis right now? China for decades would only allow their families to have one child. And guess what? Now they don't have enough young people to take care of their elderly people. And they are begging them and coercing them and forcing them and paying them to have three children per family now. Because they've messed around with God's good design. They did not see children as anything but utilitarian. And all of a sudden now their country's in an absolute mess. My dad never got the memo about children being a burden. As I told you, he had nine children. Jimmy was born nine months and two weeks after mom and dad got married at 17 and 18 years old. Don't recommend that, kiddos. But anyhow, it worked out good for them. Sandy came. They waited 11 months until Sandy came. Vicky came 12 months later. Then they waited a long time for me. I was the fifth child born on their, a fourth child born on their fifth anniversary. I came 24 months later. And then Kimberly came 12 months later, and then mom had a surgery, and the doctor said, I'm so convinced you won't have any more children that if you do, I'll pay for it. Well, he paid for Becky. And then Troy came, and then Brian came, and then Julia came. Us nine kids have given mom and dad 41 grandkids, four or five of them living up there helping plant that church in Frisco. Those 41 grandkids have now given my parents 60-some great-grandkids. There's almost 160 of us Keatons. My dad thought that he was the only one replenishing the earth. There's nothing, there's no responsibility greater than the responsibility God gives us when he gives us our children. As soon as our first daughter, Juliana, was born, and then our second daughter, Heidi, I realized that I was responsible for the physical and even more importantly, their spiritual well-being. Do you remember when you held your first child and looked in their face and it hit you, I'm holding a never-dying soul? It kind of freaked me out. I was like, oh, God, she's never going to die. Oh, yes, her body will die someday, no doubt. But, but her soul is never going to die. And the weight of that settled down upon me. We were fully aware that from day one that we would stand before God someday and give an account for how we had raised these beautiful girls. We always knew that God wasn't going to necessarily ask us about, you know, their position in life or their level of wealth. But he simply would want to know, did you teach those girls to know me, love me and serve me with a passion? Because of that, we never felt like those girls utterly belonged to us. When they were young people and teenagers, they went on 14 missions trips. They went to Honduras, Guatemala, Africa. They went all over the world, mostly without us, with members of our church and our teams, because we said we want them to see God's work in the entire world. And yes, there were dangerous situations, and one day Juliana called us, and she was stuck in some kind of a massive weather situation in Honduras. And she said, you know, when we flew into this airport, there were planes crashed all around the edge of the airport on the mountains. I was like, what? My wife and I accidentally decided to watch, while she was stuck in Honduras, a documentary on the world's 20 most dangerous airports. Don't ever do that when your kid's in Honduras. We got down to number two, and my kid was trying to fly out of the second most dangerous airport in the world. And I was like, Jesus, I gave her to you, but you can't take her right now, you know. And we got her home. Because of our understanding and our passion to see them come to know, love, and serve the Lord Jesus, we determined that we would do everything in our power to help them know God's truth, and we would do everything possible to make sure that they would not be influenced by those who would lead them away from God's truth. Is that radical in Texas to think that we ought to protect our children's minds until they are mature enough to stand on their own faith from those who would lead them astray? I pray to God 
you don't think that is radical. So parents and grandparents, it is our primary responsibility to make sure that our children know, love, and serve the Lord Jesus. Everything in this culture is working against us, so we must be intentional and determined to make this a reality. Secondly, we must give our children and grandchildren a biblical worldview because we want them to grow up to bless our hearts, not break them. Now, I say that, and the whole place goes quiet because every single one of us have got somebody in our families breaking our hearts. Every one of us, including my family. And so hold on, I'm going to give you hope before I'm done with this point. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. A foolish son is a ruin to his father. And train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. you got to hear me now. I do not believe there is an absolute guarantee that if we give our children a biblical worldview, they will choose a path of righteousness. However, I do believe there is a guarantee that if we do not give them a biblical worldview, they will go astray and break our hearts. Somebody in the last week, I used to hear this when I was pastoring, but I haven't heard it for a while. Somebody in the last week told me about a friend of theirs who had said to them recently, I'm not teaching my child anything about religion. I'm just going to let them choose whatever they want to choose. Do not be foolish. The devil will help your child choose something that will destroy them if you do not teach them the truth. I promise you. That is one of the most unwise things I've ever heard. Dr. Glenn Schultz, some of you guys have heard him speak. He's on our board at Renew Nation. He was the head of school down at Sherwood Christian down in Georgia uh, when they made all the movies facing the giants and all those things. And at the back of that church down in Albany, Georgia, when you walk out, there's a big, huge sign. And Glenn used to tell me about it. He says, it says this, whoever wants the next generation the most will get them. Whoever wants the next generation the most will get them. The devil is passionate about capturing the hearts and minds of our children and grandchildren. We must, with the help of the Holy Spirit, be much more passionate. I get up every single day. This is what drives me. This is my zone. This is all I think about now, is how can we give more children a biblical worldview? And I get up every single day with this burning passion in my soul that, oh, devil, you're not going to get all the kids. We're going to win our children to Christ and his ways. Here's what the statistics show. If we will be diligent about leading our children and grandchildren to Christ and instilling a biblical worldview in their, worldview in their hearts and minds, a vast majority of them will grow up to bless our hearts, not break them. Now, let me just stop here and talk to you about your wayward children and grandchildren. Of the eight Keaton kids, of the nine Keaton kids, I should say, eight of us went into full-time vocational ministry for the last 30-plus years. Our youngest brother chose a path of rebellion And God is working wonderfully in his life. He went into the military. We're so proud of our brothers. He was 24 years in the military. He's a wounded warrior. We're so proud of our brother's service. But my mom and dad have grieved his sinful life for decades. And yet, we had to figure out along the way, you know, what's the end game here? What's the solution? And I had many, many elderly saints come to me when I was pastoring, and they would say something like this, Pastor Jeff, listen. I think I'm the only person who really prays for my lost son or my lost daughter or my lost grandchild. And, Pastor, I'm elderly. I'm going to pass away in the next year or two or three or whatever it is. I'm going to heaven, Pastor. Who's going to pray for my wayward child after I'm gone? And I was so glad to be able to tell them what I'm going to tell you this morning. Listen, every prayer you or I have ever prayed for our lost loved ones has been deposited eternally in the heart of a God who never dies. And long after you're gone, listen to me, God will continue to answer your prayers. And, Pastor, we've been on the other end of that stick where I've had 50, 60, 70, 80-year-old people that I've led to Jesus Christ. And as soon as they prayed, tears would run down their cheeks and they would say something like this. Oh, I wish my mother could be here this morning. Oh, she said to me, the last words she ever spoke to me were, Son, please give your life to Jesus Christ. I want to see you in heaven someday. 
So if you're here this morning and you've got wayward children or grandchildren, listen to me. Do not tell them you're cutting them out of the will. Do not be nasty to them. Do not try to manipulate them back to Jesus. Love them with every single thing you have. I don't care if they're atheists, if their lifestyle is the absolute opposite of everything you believe. You love them with a passion. You pray over them to your very last breath and speak words to them that they will remember in the years to come. And God will do the rest. Amen. Third reason why we must give our children and grandchildren a biblical worldview is we want our children and grandchildren to experience the joy and satisfaction that comes from living in harmony with God's law and design. Look at that closely, what I just said. Blessed are those whose way is blameless. Blessed or favored are those who walk in the law of the Lord. You want your kids to have a good life? Teach them God's truth. All of God's laws are filled with God's love. Did you know that? There's not a mean God in the Old Testament and a nice God in the New Testament. All of his laws are filled with his love. Did you know God's laws were not put in place to restrict us? They were put in place to protect us? I had a precious lady sitting in my office about to pray to become a Christian she had been through multiple marriages. Her life had been every which way but loose on a bad side. And right before she was praying to be saved, she stopped and she said, Pastor, the only thing I'm concerned about is if I'm a Christian, I'm afraid I won't be able to have any fun. I literally looked at her and said, Ma'am, how much fun have you been having? Your life is a wreck because you violated God's good and beautiful design in every area of your life. But when we humble ourselves before the Lord and discover how He wants us to live, truly blessed things begin to happen. When we diligently teach our children and grandchildren the truth of God's Word and help them see all of life through the lens of God's Word, we set them up for a joyous life. No, we can never take away all their pain or tragedy, but we can help them to live under the blessings that come from living in harmony with God's good design. My mom and dad at 78 years old, there are over 70 of us Keatons now in some kind of full-time vocational ministry or, or preparing to go right now. It's crazy. And my dad gave his life to Jesus. He lived a life of radical faith, and now he sets back. He will probably try to call me this afternoon, and here's what he says right now. Where are you now, Jeff? He's been telling me lately, I, I just, Jeff, I'm so confused, I can't keep up with you. But he always tells me, son, I'm so proud of you. I'm so glad you're out there proclaiming the truth that God has burned upon your soul. And he's able to do that with all of my other brothers and sisters. It's the good life that God has given us because our parents taught us the truth. When our children and grandchildren come to know and love Christ and understand his will for their lives, they will not experience the unnecessary suffering. They will suffer. But they will not experience the unnecessary suffering that comes from breaking the law of God. Number four, we must give our children and grandchildren a biblical worldview because we want them to carry the Christian faith to generations to come. There in Virginia, we have a church that I, my brother is the pastor. We planted out of my church when I was still pastoring, and now he's got a wonderful, wonderful church. He's had 18 small churches approach him. My brother's extremely generous with other churches in our community. He's had 18 small churches approach him, begging him for help because they're dying. They have no young people left in their churches. We're going to do something so unique on Easter Sunday. We're sending about 100 people from our church out to these churches so they'll have a preacher and they'll have music on Easter Sunday. Isn't that cool? But you know what's sad? Somewhere along the line, they didn't teach their children the truth enough to even keep any of them in their churches. And they're dying. In Judges chapter 2, verses 6 through 10, we see how quick faith can be lost in a family. We are told in this passage that Joshua and the generation below him who had seen the great things the Lord had done, they served the Lord. So Joshua and the generation below him served the Lord. But by the time we get to his grandchildren or great-grandchildren, we read these very sad words. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. This blows my mind. This is the Joshua of the Bible. The one who followed Moses. And by the time we get to his grandchildren, they don't know the Lord and they don't even know what the Lord has done. 
faith can be lost so fast. I was speaking at the Ronald Reagan Library a few years ago. I went down to LAX to get a plane, a flight back to Washington, D.C., and then back to my home in Virginia. And I was praying a prayer that God never answers. This is a prayer God never answers. Lord, could I have an empty seat next to me between here and D.C.? The Lord doesn't like that prayer. Or maybe I just have no faith because it never happens. But on this time, I go to the back of the plane. I'm on the aisle, thank God. And there's an empty seat, and there's about a 30-year-old young man sitting on the window. And I looked at him, and I said, bro, this is our lucky flight. We're going to have an empty seat in between us all the way to Washington, D.C. It was like a five-hour flight. He goes, well, I was actually hoping that a naked woman would come and sit with us. I thought, this is going to be interesting. I plopped down in my seat, and the first question out of his mouth was, so what do you do for a living? I love it. I told him what I did for a living, and all of a sudden, he goes, oh, you're a man of faith. I'm a man of facts. I'm an agnostic. I like to call him an agnostic, but anyhow, so. So I thought, well, this is going to be one interesting five-hour flight. First of all, he has to get permission from me to go to the bathroom for the next five hours. You know what I'm saying? It's kind of like a toll booth. Well, sir, let's talk a little bit more about Jesus, and then I'll let you go. I never argue with anyone. You get nowhere being nasty and arguing with unbelievers, so don't ever try that. But I do like to ask them lots of questions. I do. I have the most amazing conversations on airplanes by asking open-ended questions about things. Sometimes I say, what, do y'all, what, what religion are you? And they'll say, Islam, this, that. What, what's Islam think about Jesus? I just ask him all kinds of questions. Well, this guy was so feisty that I decided to ask him. He said, so since, you know, he called me a man of simple faith and he was a man with all the facts, I looked at him and said, okay, since I'm a man of simple faith and you've got all the facts, tell me how we got here. He said, well, the Big Bang. I said, okay, so you believe in the Big Bang. Where did all the stuff come from that blew up? He thought about it. It took him a few seconds, maybe 30 seconds to a minute to answer. He goes, uh... Uh, oh, 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 he said, I, I, I know. He said, uh, I heard a mathematician give the formula for that one time. How everything came out of nothing. You ever seen a formula like that? But anyhow. I said, all right, sir, what was that mathematician's name? And he said, I don't know. He had no idea. And he didn't know the formula. So I looked at my dear brother who was stuck beside me for the next five hours, and I said, well, actually, sir, I honestly think you have more faith than I do. He said, I'm not a man of faith. I said, well, I said, uh, you know, I, I am a man of faith. I said, I have my faith in a God who gave us a book. I compare that book to reality, and it makes tremendous sense. I said, sir, you have your faith in a mathematician whose name you don't even know. And that started a two and a half hour worldview discussion. The people in front of us got saved 11 times in one flight. <laughs> i got to believe when they got off the plane, it was like, oh, God, thank you. Thank you. This poor young man, he didn't have a clue what we believed. He thought we hated everybody. I mean, it was terrible. His worldview was, was, it was he didn't know anything about Christianity. And yet somewhere towards the end of that discussion, he suddenly looked at me and said, I've got to tell you something. So what is that? He said, my grandmother on the one side is a Southern Baptist woman. And my grandmother on the other side is a Mennonite woman. And my name is Matthew Adam. And what hit me then and what has hit me so much more since then is this. Thirty years earlier, a little Southern Baptist grandma went to a hospital to hold a brand new baby boy whose mama thought so high of the scriptures that she named him Matthew Adam, no doubt. And a little Mennonite grandma went to that same hospital and they took turns picking that little boy up and looking at his beautiful face. And maybe they said, oh, Matthew, Adam, I can only imagine the purpose God has for you in this world. Oh, I can imagine what you're going to do for the kingdom of Jesus in this world. And yet I'm sitting with him on the back of a plane 30 years later and he doesn't believe a single thing his grandparents believed. Faith can be lost so fast in a family. Number five, we must give our children and grandchildren a biblical worldview because 
We want to spend, if you can say it that way, all eternity with our children and grandchildren. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose their soul? Listen to me. Moms and dads, there is a crisis of priorities in the church world with children. A man came up to my brother, and he had his 11-year-old son standing there with him. And he said, just wanted to let you know we're going to be gone for a few Sundays playing travel ball. That's not terribly uncommon. We have a large, large church. My brother said, okay. He said, well, how long are you going to be gone? And the man said, we'll be gone for the next 22 straight Sundays. And when that boy was 17, he was 11 when he told my, dad, my, my brother that. And when that boy was 17, that dad had the audacity to come to our student ministries pastor and say, there's something bad wrong with your church here. My son has no interest in coming to church. Because that dad wanted him to make it to Major League Baseball more than he wanted him to make it to heaven. And you can make it to Major League Baseball. I'm not saying you can't play travel ball. My daughter was an All-State basketball player. I, we walked through that battle of AAU and whatever else it was. But we made a choice, and thank God my daughter made a choice, that we weren't sacrificing every camp and every spiritual event that my kid was involved in just so that maybe she could get a college scholarship. And we're so grateful today that my girl at 30 years old is passionately in love with Jesus Christ. So giving our children and grandchildren a biblical worldview is such a great idea. How are we doing? How have we done in the last 50 years in the United States? First of all, I like to categorize those, all those born in the 80s and 90s as millennials. Some people categorize them a little differently. But there were 75 to 80 million children born in the 80s and 90s in the United States. That was the largest generation in American history. They are the most educated generation in American history. And they are also the least religious generation in American history. 40%, this, these are some new statistics from George Barna, 40% do not know, care, or believe God exists. 67% do not believe in the God described in the Bible. 75% believe all religious faiths are of equal value. 50% favor socialism over our current form of government. 23% profess Jesus as their Savior. And I asked George Barna personally, in person, I said, what's your statistics on these 75 to 80 million millennials how many of them have a world, a biblical worldview? And he looked at me and said, do you want to get depressed? I said, not really, but I want to know the truth. And this was the number he gave me, 4%. So currently the Gen Z years are born from 2000, 2012, roughly 11 to 23 years old. This generation is the first to be fully indoctrinated in our nation with critical theory in the areas of sexuality, gender, race, economics, etc. They have no idea who they are, what their purpose is, and they are harming themselves and taking their lives in record numbers. 38% of the 18 to 24-year-olds declare themselves LGBTQ plus now. I'm not here to bash on anybody. I love every single human being. I don't care what a person's sin is. I've cared for them, loved them, held their hands, pastored them, every person. I love every human being. But I'm going to tell you something. We have an identity crisis, a true identity crisis, Kids don't even know what it means to be human because they don't know what the truth is. They don't understand how God created them. So after I gave you all those statistics, don't go jump off a bridge. I'm better than George Barna because at least I give you hope at the end, all right? Is there any hope for this generation? You better believe there is. Those kids that I saw in Frisco yesterday, they're millennials. But guess what? Somebody taught them the truth. They love the Lord. They're willing to live in 500 square foot apartments and work two jobs to plant a church because they got a passion burning in their soul for Jesus and the lost world around us. You better believe there's hope. When you win the heart, and this is reason number six if you're counting, when you win the heart and mind of just one child, they can be used by God to literally change the world. This is TJ. He came into our Christian school when he was just a young boy. We had him until he graduated. We were very serious about biblical worldview development in our school. I hired what I call my biblical worldview guru. He was in a genius club. The guy's IQ was like 160, 170. And he said to me, what is my mission in this school? And I said, your mission is to train our middle and high school students so that when they go to the University of Virginia or Virginia Tech University and they land in that first world religions class and that guy mocks the Bible and mocks their parents and mocks everything about Christianity, I want them to have heard every single argument he's going to make against Christianity. I want them to know why it's not true. I want them to know what the truth is. And I want them to be able to verbalize the truth. 
That was our mission. We didn't bat a thousand, but we went after it. TJ graduated, went off to a local non-Christian college, and for the first time in nine years, he had a, a teacher who hated Christianity and loved abortion, loved everything that you know TJ was against and hated everything TJ was for. TJ was trying to keep fairly low profile in this class because sometimes you can get punished on your grades if you stand up and say who you are. So he was kind of keeping a low profile. There was 25 kids in the class. He was the only one that had any kind of a biblical worldview educational background. The teacher kept splitting the class into two groups and having them uh, debate benign subjects like what's the best restaurant in our city. And for whatever reason, TJ, whatever team debate team TJ was on, his debate team won Debate after debate after debate. I know why. Because T.J. hadn't been taught groupthink. He'd been taught how to think. He'd been taught the truth. He knew how to be persuasive in his speech. And so everything was going so well that the professor came to T.J. one day and said, Son, all I can say for you is that you ought to become a lawyer because you're really amazing at this debate thing. And that was kind of flattering. And T.J. was like, well, I'm glad he likes me. You know, let's just keep this thing going as it is. And then T.J. walked into class one day, and the teacher stood up and said, Today we're going to debate abortion. And T.J. thought, Oh, no, I'm going to get exposed. And to T.J.'s horror, when the teacher said, If you're for abortion, come over to this side, he watched 23 students come over here and say they were for abortion. He was the only one who said he was against abortion. And he said one kid stood up and said, I don't know what I'm for, but I'm going with T.J. because he wins all these debates. <laughs> Smart kid. T.J.'s dad told me this story first, and then I sat down and talked to T.J. about it. And he said, honestly, the first thing that hit my brain when I realized I was one against all of them was, why didn't I listen more in those classes? You hear me, guys? You're going to need it someday. Perk it up, okay, in class right now. Quit looking like you're sleepy, all right? You're not sleepy this morning, but anyhow. Anybody will listen to stories, won't they? But anyhow. T.J., the teacher said, well, since there's so many of you to his delight, you guys make your case first. And as they began to talk, T.J. said, I began to realize that this wasn't going to be near as hard as I thought it was. (laughs) Crazy things driving me nuts. Do you know these things are from the devil? (laughs) They're made straight north of hell, two feet. I deal with them all across America. My little ears call me issues. But anyhow. As they began to debate, T.J. realized, I'm telling you, the devil's fighting me with this stupid thing. T.J. said, the longer they talked, the more I realized this wasn't going to be near as hard as I thought it was. And when they were done, he decided that he would do his best. He literally said, I didn't know if I had what it took to do this. But he said, somewhere from within him, one point after another after another began to come up. Here's what I've discovered, that when you baptize children in the truth, when they need it, the Holy Spirit will bring it to the surface. And T.J. made point after point after point about why abortion wasn't good for society and women and children. And he went on. And then when he was all done, somewhere some kind of crazy holy boldness overtook him. And he literally made this statement right in front of this professor. And all these students, he said, in reality, every time someone has an abortion, a baby is murdered. Now, let me just stop here and say, every place I speak, somebody in that service has had abortion, usually several somebodies, because many of you have been lied to. I don't want to put guilt on you this morning. God is a forgiving God. People have lied. We've got to stop lying to our young women in this country about this, don't we? But those are the cold, hard facts, and that's how T.J. expressed it. As that teacher did at the end of every single debate, he looked at the class and said, if you've changed your mind, switch sides. And T.J. was blown away. When all 23 young men and women came over to his side. (laughs) It just took one young man with a well-developed biblical worldview and the ability to communicate his ideas to win the hearts of all 24 of those other students. That's what Temple Christian is working to do is release kids into this culture. What we need is millions of TJs in this world. Send them out there with the truth of God. The truth is beautiful. The truth is redemptive. It's hopeful. It it helps society. And unleash them on this darkened world. So as I work towards a close quickly, what should we do? We have to acknowledge there's a problem. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. 
The way we trained our children in the evangelical church in the last 50 years mostly did not work. We've got to get the family, the church, and the school all teaching God's truth again. Secondly, evaluate and manage your child's media intake. Listen to me. They're going to spend between 15 and 20,000 hours with technology and media from kindergarten to 12th grade these days. 15 to 20,000. They spend 16,000 hours in school. If you come to church twice a week, they only spend 2,000 hours at church in those same years. So moms and dads, forget peer pressure. Who gives a rip what the Joneses are doing with their kids? You know, those kids in your church and their families, you know, that he's on the deacon board or something. My kids used to come to me and say, Daddy, why don't you let us do this? Because brother so-and-so and his family, they let all their kids do that. I mean, they've got 400 channels in their room. They've got unlimited access to the Internet. They've got cell phones at four years old. I mean, you know, they were like, Dad, they do it. Why don't you let us do it? And I used to literally say something like this to my kids because I'm not half as crazy as that man is. I'm way smarter than he is. And I got one mission, and that is deliver you to adulthood until you can stand on your own two feet to deliver you to adulthood without your mind and your soul corrupted by the evils of this world. And so I never cared one ounce what anybody else was doing with their kids. And by God's divine grace, we delivered. I walked my girls down the aisles on their wedding days as virgins. Their minds and their bodies had not been corrupted because we protected them. And today they're warriors for Jesus Christ. So stand up. Don't just give into this stuff. If you need some help on technology, I'm sure Pastor understands all this. He's got some great understanding of what's going on in our culture today. But if you need some help, we can help you. We've got ideas about how to control cell phones and all that good stuff. Examine their educational experience. We're here celebrating the 50th anniversary of Christian school. If you have your children in this school, what a wonderful blessing. You've delegated authority to the teachers and the administrators and the leaders of this school. They're helping you every day. You know they're pouring God's truth. So wonderful thing. If for some reason you're here and you can't afford to have your kid in a Christian school, listen to me. We can all agree that they're not going to develop a biblical worldview through any form of non-Christian education, okay, be it private or public. So you better really train them at home big time in the evenings. Become a student of biblical worldview. You can't teach something. You can't pass on something you don't personally possess. Help your church make a greater impact. Uh, We've got a, I've been asking senior pastors across the country, if the only thing a child knew at 18 years of age about God was what your church taught them from zero to 18, how much would they know? How much would they would be, be prepared to go into the world? And many senior pastors lately have said, not much. We got to do it different. We've got to do it different. And then train them at home. Moms and dads, it is your primary responsibility to train your children. Even if you have them in a Christian school, even if you bring them to church, people literally will bring their kids to my school. They would bring them to my school and drop them off and then blame me for all their kids' problems because they weren't living for Jesus at home. No, you can't blame the school or the church. You're going to stand before God someday and give an account for how you train these kids at home. So let me just, I never like to come and challenge you to train children without giving you a few resources. I brought on this book table back here just three or four resources with me this weekend. First of all, this wonderful little primer on biblical worldview. It's not a philosophy book. It's written so moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas can understand it, what it is, why it matters, and how to shape the worldview of the next generation. There's also a 43-page study guide that goes with this book. We have free magazines, not that edition. We're out of that edition, basically, but we've got new ones uh, back there on the table. Take Everybody take a magazine home with you, all right? And then this book right here, and I'm almost done, uh, 50 Things Every Child Needs to Know Before Leaving Home. Let me just tell you this. Uh, Dr. Josh Mulvihill, who's the author, he leads our church and family division at Renew Nation. And one day he and I were speaking out in Minnesota. You think it's cold here today? That day was actually negative 27 degrees in Minnesota. We were speaking. And it snowed five inches, and 300 people still came out for the conference. Then people up that crazy. But anyhow, Josh stands up, and he tells this story at the close of one speech. And he said, when I was a 17-year-old boy, my mom and dad took me out to breakfast. And they pulled out this old sheet of paper, and they opened it up. And they said, Josh, when you were just a little boy, we sat down and wrote down all the things we wanted you to know before you left home. Here's what we've been working on for the last 17 years. Tell us how we did and what we need to work on for the last year before you go to college. Josh said, that that piece of paper blew my mind. My whole life flashed before my eyes. It was everything from inductive Bible study to small engine repair, literally. Josh said, the only thing I told him they'd failed on was small engine repair, and I told him to give up. It was never going to work. 
Well, Josh told that story that day, and I was sitting there going, where's that list? I've never heard this story before. We go back to the book table, and every young couple in the church almost lined up, and all they wanted to know was, Josh, do you have a copy of that list? And he didn't because his mother died not long after that unexpectedly. He never got a copy, but it was written on his heart and mind. And I looked at him that day, and I said, that is your next book, Josh. And I brought it today, 50 things every child needs to know before leaving home. It's a workbook. It's a resource, a place to put your child's picture all through their life. It's something you hand to them at the end when, when they get married, and you say, this is how we train you. Now go train your children. This is powerful. also brought one book on biblical grandparenting uh, that is fantastic for grandparents. And then there is a DVD of the speech that I gave this morning right here. There's a DVD back there of that, or you can get it digitally online. And with this, I'm done. These are my three beautiful grandchildren. Marshall is the older one there. Henry's the fattest one on the right. And Nora is our granddaughter. This is, this is the picture we put on Facebook. Oh, don't do There we go. And this is the actual picture that really happened. Oops, I got to go back. The thing went, there you go. There's the actual picture, yeah. But with this, I'm done. I told him Friday night this little thing that hit me lately, and I just got to tell you again because there's a lot of people here today who weren't there. This is my four-year-old grandson, Marshall. He lives on a 2,000-acre farm. He drives a full-size four-wheeler already. He gets paid 20 cents a line. They move 500 head of cattle every day. They move the cows every day. Marshall drives a four-wheeler while his daddy's rolling up the one electric line and throwing the stakes in the back of the four-wheeler. And his daddy pays him 20 cents. He's going to have more money by the time he's 10 than I do now. But anyhow, he rides me all over the ranch on the four-wheeler. As soon as I get there, he'll go, Fall, you want to go on a four-wheeler ride? I couldn't believe when his mom and dad said, no, dad, he can drive it. He'll, he'll drive you. Just, just stay on the back. And I get on there, and not long ago I was there, and he took me. Pastor's been to our camp. He spoke for us last summer. going to speak again this summer up there. But, but he took me to this real steep hill, and he stopped. And he said, Fall, do you want to drive up the big hill? I said, yes, I do. And he had the audacity to look up at me and say, now you be careful. I can't tell you how much I love that little boy. But here's what hit me over the last four and a half years. I did a little math in my head one day when I was thinking about Marshall. And it dawned on me that it's highly, highly likely that his children will still be alive 100 years from right now. He's four years old. If he has a child at 30 years old, that's 26 years from now. If that child lives to 74, that's 100 years from now. He's going to have kids alive more than 100 years from now. And what has dawned on me as a grandparent, my wife and I, and thankfully my daughter and her husband are very open to this. We're very committed to helping with the spiritual development of our grandchildren. And it's dawned on me that if Julianne and Andrew will do well by Marshall, And Michelle and I will do well by Marshall. 100 years from now, his children will be doing well by their children and their grandchildren. The fix for the brokenness in our world is to regain access to the hearts and minds of our children Pour God's truth into them. Refuse to accept the idea, well, the devil's going to get some of them. Not on our watch by the grace of God. If he gets them, it's not going to be because of something we didn't do. We're going to pour our soul into the discipleship of our children, and then we're going to unleash them on this broken world, and they, through the power of God's Word and the power of the Holy Spirit, are going to fix what is broken. That's our hope for this nation. So moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, it's a big assignment. But listen, don't be passive. Don't sit back and say, well, you know, I've known churches. I took a church. Well, I ain't going to tell you where I took it. But yeah, I went to one church and they had it. No, no teenagers were Christians in this church. And they had this philosophy. Well, all of our teens sow their wild oats and then they come back at around 30 years of age. Are you kidding me? Why would we waste those beautiful years? To that kind of falsehood. No, we're going to stand up. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, we're going to fight for the souls of our children so we can unleash them into this darkened world. Jesus, thank you, Lord, for this wonderful congregation that has listened so well this morning. I pray, oh God. I pray, oh God. I don't know what you need to do in hearts this morning, Lord. 
Maybe there's some parents here, Lord, that you're convicting this morning, and they're saying, I've got to step it up. I've got to do a better job. I've got to, I've got to get more engaged. Maybe there's some dads here, Lord, they're just working all the time and recreating, and, and they're not as engaged in the spiritual development of their sons and daughters as they should be. They're leaving it all up, all up to their wife. Or maybe there's some moms here, Lord, that are disconnected from that for some reason. Oh, God, right now, as we are closing this prayer, would you help any parent or grandparent here, Lord, that has not been intentional about this to right now say, oh, Lord God, I am sorry, but if you will help me, if you will help me, Jesus, I will get engaged. I will become intentional like never before in the training of my children and grandchildren. Maybe, Lord, (coughs) maybe, Lord, there's somebody here this morning. There's a dad or mom who hasn't yet utterly surrendered their life to Jesus Christ and placed all their hope and faith in you, Jesus, to save them from their sins and to give them the power to live a holy life in the home. I pray right now, Lord, if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, but their heart is hungry this morning, you've been speaking to them, that right now they might join me in saying something like this. They don't even have to say it out loud. They can say it in their heart. Dear Jesus, I am so sorry for my sin. I'm so sorry, Lord, that I haven't been the spiritual example to my children that I should have been. But this morning, Jesus, I ask for your forgiveness. And I trust you to forgive me. I trust you to help me become the mom or dad, the grandma or grandpa that I ought to be. So that a hundred years from now, my great-grandchildren will be walking in the truth of Jesus. So, Lord, do your work in every heart. And we'll praise you for what you do in Jesus' name.